Hey everyone, this is Yvette Hampton. Welcome back to the Schoolhouse Rocked podcast. I'm back today with Adam Andrews from Center for Lit, and we're talking about literature. (laughs) So if you missed Monday's episode, go back. It was so good. He walked us through the book, A Bargain for Francis, and uh, just how, how to read a story. What techniques can we use for teaching literature to our kids? And then how we talked in the end about how we can kind of apply that to our own lives. And really what it requires is asking questions and teaching our kids to ask questions. And this is something that I think we need to do constantly in our lives is ask the question. Most importantly, ask questions to God who's writing the story of our lives. Uh, but it, it is a fun way to read a story and to really help our kids to understand what it is that they're reading. Because oftentimes I read stuff and I'm like, I have no idea what I just read. Um, and so anyway, well, if you use this method, this is going to be really helpful. We're going to talk today more about the Socratic method and what makes a classic and some other things. But before we get into that, I want to say thank you to our sponsor, CTC Math. If you're looking for a great online math program that you don't have to teach yourself, they will teach your kids math. It's an interactive program that your kids can watch tutorials. They can figure out how to do algebra or whatever it is that they're doing. And then they they do the problems through the website um, and it grades it for them. It does all the work for you. Try them out. It's free. ctcmath.com. I do not think you will be disappointed. Well, Adam, welcome back to the podcast. Um, Let's talk about the Socratic method. And let me just say before you start off on this, use small words for people like me (laughs) (laughs) who don't know what the Socratic method is. I probably should 13 years into our homeschooling, but I don't. Um, And I would guess that many of our listeners don't know what that is either, but it just sounds big and fancy and like Harvard University like, you know. (laughs) I can make (laughs) it so, so, so approachable. Sure. So we name it after uh, it's actually a teaching technique that's fairly uh, well known in the world of education, and it's named after the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates, mm-hmm. uh, who is famous for saying to his the group of students that he was teaching, "I don't really know anything. I'm just going to find out from you what truth is. So let me ask you, and you tell me what you think, and then I'll follow that up with another question." And so we actually use the Socratic method, the term, to refer to teaching by asking questions. That's all we mean. Okay. Teaching by asking questions. But if you think about it for a minute, that's uh, that's simple, but it's also kind of profound. And you homeschool parents can can imagine thinking that it's now time to teach the American Civil War, for example. And so you stand up in your kitchen with your kids around your table and you begin to hold forth on the American Civil War and you find out immediately that there is a great burden incumbent upon your shoulders to A, be an expert on the American Civil War, right? And B, be good at explaining your expertise to a room full of, relatively speaking, ignoramuses. And this is a great burden because we all understand that you're not an expert on the Civil War. You're just a homeschool mom who has a book. Right. And so the burden of being an expert, of teaching by lecturing, is very great. And I would say from my own experience as a homeschool parent, generally speaking, too great to handle. Mm -hmm. What we eventually do is we throw up our hands. We either do a terrible job or we do a terrible job by our own standards and we fall into depression and anxiety, or we give up and put them in a school somewhere, or we do something else because the burden of being the expert is is too great to handle. The Socratic method takes this burden off of our shoulders, philosophically speaking, because it says at the outset, the teacher and the student are alike ignorant and their job together is to 
explore and inquire and ask questions of a thing that sits before them. And that thing is itself. And their job is to try and understand it. In the case of literature, that thing is a story. But actually, the Socratic method works as well in any other discipline. If the thing before you is an equation, or the thing before you is a historical event, or the thing before you is a rock, the Socratic method says, let's inquire together. And so the only thing that the teacher is, is required to be an expert in is knowing which question to ask next. And we find that this, which is the essence of the Socratic method, is a far lighter burden. Mm -hmm. And it's so it can be encouraging to teachers to teach Socratically. Turns out that in literature, the, the questions necessary to conduct a Socratic discussion of any work of literature in the world uh, boil down to a five-page list. And it's actually a certain number of questions. Missy and I have developed them. We've developed our version of them in Teaching the Classics. There's actually 170 questions on this list. And with those 170 questions, not all of them every time, just a selection right. of those questions, you can teach any book in the world, even if you're not an expert in it. So that's what we mean by the Socratic method, learning which questions to ask, and then taking the philosophical stance of a co-learner, a co-inquirer with your mm -hmm. student and enjoying a discovery process together. Yeah, I think this comes, um, this is most important when it comes to reading God's word, right? Because there are so many times, which of course the Bible is the greatest literature ever written. And we sometimes read it, I know for myself, and and I've read the Bible cover to cover. I, I have read the Bible a lot, um, read it every day. And there still are so many things, I'm reading through Revelation again right now. And I'm just like, <sighs> okay, I don't understand a lot of what I'm reading, but trying to read commentaries and ask questions and stuff. And I think when we read the Bible with our kids, that is so important for us to inquire together, right? It's okay for us to say to our kids, we don't have all the answers. We sure. don't know all the things, and we're never going to know all the answers to all the things, but let's study it together. Yeah. And and of course, with God's word, that's where the Holy Spirit comes into, right? We pray, sure. Lord, God, help us to understand your word because he wrote it for a reason. Um, and so when it comes to literature, I love that we can inquire together. People, I think, expect homeschool moms to either know everything or they expect them not to homeschool their kids because they don't know everything. Yeah. Oftentimes they'll say, yeah. well, you don't, you're not an expert in all the subjects. So how can you possibly teach that to your kids? Well, here's the thing I would say about that. It's very true, of course. But when it comes to literature, you don't have to be an expert in Dostoevsky or Shakespeare to be an expert in story structure. Right. Because it turns out that story structure is very, very simple. Yeah. In the same way that a um, that a Broadway show has two acts with an intermission in between, and at the mm -hmm. end of the first act, there's this big song. Every Broadway show has that. It's the form of a Broadway show, right? Right. It turns out that every novel has an exposition, a rising action, a climax, a denouement, and a conclusion. The structure of a story is something that you can be the master of. Mm -hmm. And so the questions that you can be taught to ask your students, to inquire with your students, have to do with those elements of story about which you can understand. And you can be very confident. That actually applies to reading the Word of God as well. I don't know what the prophet Jeremiah is saying in all of its details. Let's inquire together. But I do know a few things about the story that God is telling in the Old Testament. And that general framework can give me a ground of certainty from which I can then begin to inquire. Mm -hmm. 
What are your thoughts on using study guides? Study guides are a great resource for one thing, I think, and that is to remind a teacher who may not have recently read the story that she's working with who the main characters are. To remind somebody who's just needs a little brushing up on the facts and whether chapter eight was uh, was where the the event happened uh, of the details of the story. What we found with a lot of study guides is that they do not pay, in my view, enough attention to the structural and stylistic universal mm-hmm. characteristics of a story to support thoughtful analysis. But they are very good summaries of a story's action. You know, yeah. it turns out that that uh, an author doesn't really write a story only to tell a series of events. That series of events is being presented for a reason. He almost always wants to say something about those about life with that series of events, unless he's Franklin W. Dixon who wrote The Harding Boys. Then he's just telling a series of events. Right. But Mark Twain writing Huckleberry Finn, right, about Huck's journey down the river with his runaway slave friend, not just telling a story that is. Huck put in at this place in the river and got out at this place in the river, and then Jim got sold back into slavery at this place in the river. He's using those events to talk about an idea, to talk about racism or hypocrisy in religion or true humanity or some universal theme. And a discussion of the structural elements of a story allows us to interact with that theme in the way that the average study guide kind of doesn't. Yeah. Wouldn't it be so interesting to get to talk to every author of every book that you read and just dig into their brains and say, what is it that you were trying to get across? You know, we, we have the general idea, but it's interesting how people can read a different, you know, I, I've done book clubs before and different people can read a different story and they will have a different take on yeah, it. Right. I mean, again, we do that with God's word sometimes. I mean, there are some non-negotiables, but different Christians interpret some things from the Bible differently. And so we interpret books differently. And even, you know, I love listening to audiobooks read by the author because sometimes you read it on your own and then the author reads it and you're like, oh, I didn't really emphasize or I wouldn't have emphasized that particular part of the book. But apparently the author thought that was important because that's how he read it. He Mm -hmm. emphasized that part of it. So it would be fascinating to get into the minds of all of the authors who have written all of the books, especially when it comes to the classics, which we're going to talk about next after the break. We'll be right back. No parent should homeschool alone. You have a God-given calling to bring up your child to love God and to steward His creation. And BJU Press exists to help you be successful in that endeavor. Visit their website at bjupresshomeschool.com or call 1-800-845-5731 to connect with an experienced homeschool consultant. Apologia supports homeschool families with Christ-centered K-12 homeschool curriculum designed to engage your student as they experience the awe and wonder of creation and their creator. Designed by leading scholars with a biblical worldview, Apologia's award-winning curriculum is written in a conversational tone directly to the student to encourage independence. Hands-on activities and experiments help students solidify the concepts they're exploring and build a lifelong love of learning. Visit us at Apologia.com. We are back with Adam Andrews from Center for Lit. Um, Let's talk about classics because, of course, in the world of homeschooling, we always learn about the classics. You have to read the classics with your kids. And I remember when my um, oldest, we, we were just getting started in homeschooling and she was four. And I remember my friend talking to me about manipulatives. And I was like, 
what in the world is a manipulative? I don't even know what word that is. I don't know what you're talking about. And of course she was talking about, you know, things that you do with your hands and how they can learn through, you know, things like that. And, and, and I quickly learned what that was. And I feel like the classics kind of make their way into that same world of <laughs> not that people haven't heard of classics, but then you ask the question, well, what is a classic? What makes a classic? Why is a classic important? Are all classics good Are some bad or some harmful? Yeah. What is the whole purpose of reading classics? So talk us through what is a classic? What okay. makes a real one? And then how can we discern a good classic mm. from one that could be harmful to us as Christian homeschoolers? Those are great questions. And they're related, of course, but it's but they're not the same. It's not the same question. There's two very separate ones. And I think yeah. important to take them separately. Um, the definition of a classic is obviously a subject of much debate, but we don't really debate uh, which which books belong in the category? At least we can agree. Most most thoughtful observers can agree on a list of titles that are generally considered classics, and they have a couple of things in common. The first is that the human family has been reading them for a long, long time. That's the first one. They stand the test of time. Right? We are still reading Homer's Iliad, mm -hmm. and it's not just because eighth grade English teachers require it of their students. It's because there's something about it that makes us want to read it over and over again. And so uh, the the ability of a book to be relevant for a long time is one of the, the key definitions of a classic. But if you go back in, into that question and and examine it a little bit, you have to ask, why is, a, why is the Iliad still relevant? Why do we read the Iliad over and over again? It's, a, it's in a foreign language about a culture that has nothing to do with our culture, about people that are strange to us in just about every way. How is it relevant? Well, I don't know if you know the story of the Iliad, but it, in a sense, is the story of a guy who feels like he's been wronged and gets his feelings hurt. And then when presented with the choice of whether to be reconciled with the person that had offended him and let bygones be bygones and enter back into a friendship and a relationship, or nurse the bitterness in his heart, refuse to be reconciled, and let whatever consequences come what may, he chooses the latter. He chooses bitterness. He chooses offense. And what happens, the first line of the Iliad says, seeing goddess of the wrath of Peleus son Achilles and the devastation that it wreaked upon the Achaeans. The Achaeans are his own people. The Achaeans are, are Achilles people. And so what the, the, the author tells us right from the beginning, this is going to be a story about a guy who will not be reconciled to someone who has given him offense and it destroys him. And we realize as we read the Iliad, oh, now I know why everybody reads the Iliad, because that theme, the destructive effects of bitterness when you nurse it in your heart and refuse to be reconciled, is relevant to everyone. Mm -hmm. We still do that today. I did that last week. That's the kind of thing that's human down at the very bottom. And furthermore, Homer tells that story in a, the, a compelling way that you do not soon forget. And so we come to this definition of a classic. A classic is a story that deals with a universally compelling theme in a compelling way. Mm -hmm. Content and style combine to make a classic. If you add to that definition, one that has addressed a universally compelling theme in a compelling way for three centuries, right. then you have a pretty ironclad definition. But that does raise the question of what about uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. for example. 
Does that story address universally compelling themes? I would say yes. Does it address them in compelling ways? I would say yes. But, you know, they were written in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. So it hasn't been three centuries yet. Right. So that's a really fun discussion to have. What books that are being treasured by our civilization today will someday have the status of the hoary old classics of bygone eras? And we can have that conversation. But I think the definition that we've come up with is more useful in holding up Tolkien to a great respect and admiration. Yeah. Yeah. You have a list on your website, right? Of good literature, classics, things like that. Oh, yeah. Okay. We'll yeah. link to those in the show notes. Yeah, sure. At centerfield.com, we've got all kinds of resources that that basically point uh, readers and teachers to what we think are our classics. But it's important to note that there's a lot of recent books on those lists. Yeah. I actually think, you know, Kind Potok's The Chosen, uh, written in the 60s, um, is a classic by any definition, except it hasn't been around for 300 years. Right. right. But the question is, is it a universally compelling theme, the relationship between a father and a son and the difficulty of communication there? Absolutely. Is it sure. compelling? Couldn't put it down. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's going to be a classic. I would call it a classic now. So yeah, a okay. lot of recent titles on our lists as well. Yeah. So let's talk about some harm, harmful classics, yeah. I'm, if you will. You know, what what are some, and, and not that we need names, but how do we determine whether one could be, maybe, maybe it's a, a book that's been around for centuries, mm-hmm. you know, or for many, many years. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's just not so good for the soul. Sure. Well, that's a really good question. Uh, and I would be, um, to avoid that question is to say that reading doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really have a lot of effect on you can read whatever you want. And I don't think that's true. I think art and stories in particular are very compelling and they're very formative and they're very powerful. And so it's important to uh, handle them properly and to know the difference between a beneficial one and a harmful one. Yeah. You got to ask yourself some questions there. Right? What does it mean to be harmed by a story? And uh, that's where I think the, um, the parent has a really important role in mm-hmm. um, serving up literature and stories to their kids. Because you got to decide as a family, what are the things that we will exclude from our family experience altogether? Right. Or maybe more importantly, when shall we begin to expose our students to the things in this world that we may not think are great? Right. Right. And that in the, in the same way that we do that with, with movies and the same way that we do that with mm-hmm. the kinds of associations that we want them to have, the clubs that we want them to join or not join, we need to do that with the, their books as well. It turns out, though, that a lot of parents um, are quick, I think, to pull the trigger on books that they might find objectionable and so risk missing an opportunity to teach their kids about the world in a very yeah. safe environment because there's nothing safer than reading a book, a strange book, maybe even right. an objectionable book in the safety of your own kitchen with yeah. your mom and dad as guides. So I always argue for drawing the pale in your family as wide as you can comfortably do it and welcoming in even books from other perspectives that may contain content that you find questionable so that you can understand it, address it, and uh, interpret it properly. You have a great right. chance as the leader of your homeschool to interpret right. everything that comes into the house. And uh, that chance ought not to be wasted. Yeah, yeah. And it does open up really great discussions um, with our kids. It is so hard sometimes because they're already bombarded with so much negativity and so uh-huh. much sin. I mean, like just this world that we live in, it hurts. It hurts to just walk around. You know, you walk through Walmart or the mall and you just you just see these flashing neon signs, you know, of, of 
how people have rejected the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so that is the reality of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I agree, you know, we have to be discerning, but there are some things that under the protection of of our home mm-hmm. that we can read these things with our kids, you know, mm-hmm. maybe not just hand it to them and say, go, you know, lock yourself in your bedroom and read it, right. but read it along with our kids. And then we can have those open discussions and we can talk about these things. Um, there are some, kids. if we have time, there are a couple of Socratic questions actually that really sure. help in this regard. Uh, after you read a story, you can ask, in the world of this story, what is the definition of a good life that's mm-hmm. being assumed by all of its characters? What's a good life? I was reading a story by Jack London called To Build a Fire recently, that story about the guy who out in the wilderness of the Yukon freezes to death. And if you ask that question of the story after it's over, you realize in this story, a good life is a long one. And there's no such thing as a good death because right. death is the <laughs> ultimate enemy. And if you examine that story in the with the perspective of those two questions, what you find is as compelling as that story might sound, it's actually giving the wrong answers to two of the most fundamental questions uh, of human existence. A good life actually is not a long one. A good life is a life lived in the service of God and neighbor. Right. Right. It's not true that there's no such thing as a good death. My whole worldview depends on that there was a very good death and that I partake in that very good death. And so the answers to that, and so in other words, the, the, the risk of Jack London's story is mitigated by the fact that I'm asking the right questions of it as it comes into my house. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. We are out of time, but we're going to come back tomorrow. We're going to finish this conversation. We're going to talk about how to encourage reluctant readers. I know that is something that we've dealt with at our home. Um, how to maybe understand literature as a unique art form. Um, and we're just going to keep talking about literature. Um, and this is such a fascinating conversation. I love it so much. Adam, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Tell us one more time where people can find out more about you and Center for Lit. Sure thing. So our website is centerforlit.com, C-E-N-T-E-R-F-O-R-L-I-T.com. All right. We will link that in the show notes. Thank you guys so much for listening. We are so blessed that you are uh, such a great audience. We love you guys. We love hearing from you. If you ever want to send an email to us, you can send that to us at podcast at schoolhouserocked.com. And even if it's just pray for us, you know, we, I'm saying you let us know how we can pray for you. You can pray for us too. <laughs> we always need prayer as well as we continue on with the Schoolhouse Rock to Ministry. But if there is a way that we can pray for you and your family, let us know. Send us an email, podcast at schoolhouserocked.com. Stay tuned to the very end so you can hear a clip of what's coming up tomorrow. Have a great day. We'll see you back here then. Bye. What we do at IEW is break through the the noise of the grammar and the writing prompts, and we say, this is what you do, step by step. And I've witnessed it over and over again, both watching Andrew teach and hearing from parents, this is the best writing program. We've made it so easy and made it really affordable. So any mom can teach writing to their children using our course, and we guarantee it. To try three weeks of free lessons, visit IEW.com slash rocked. Always, always teach literature with books below reading level. And it doesn't matter how far below. The further below reading level, the better. And the reason for this is that one of the main obstacles we face in reading among reluctant readers is it's too hard. It's daunting. It is intimidating. 
for me to try and read that book. I'm not gonna understand it. The words are gonna be too big. I don't get it. It's too much work. There's too many words on the page, et cetera, and et cetera. If we can remove all of those obstacles and just present reading itself in a situation where success is almost assured, then a lot of those barriers are gonna to start to come down.